Welcome to Nothing Makes Perfect, a podcast about practice. I'm Jeremy, and before introducing today's guest, I just want to take a moment to say I'm feeling really grateful for all the guests who have come on. The fact that I get to have these conversations about topics I'm super interested in with people I can learn so much from, and to you for being here and listening. I love hearing messages from you with questions, ideas for future episodes, requests. I love having conversations in private, and honestly, I don't love recording them. It's not my favorite thing to feel like anybody in the world could be listening to everything I'm saying, but I'm so glad that I decided to take this project on in public and share these conversations because ultimately what grows out of each one of them is it goes much further than the conversation itself. So thank you. I'm having a great time, and I hope you are too. Now, Leah Samuelson. Leah hails from the Bay Area and is a hand balancer turned future lawyer. She is a graduate of L'École de Cirque de Québec, which I pronounced flawlessly, nothing makes flawless, where she specialized in hand balancing, acrobatics, and slack rope. After almost a decade performing and teaching, Leah went back to school to pursue a career in environmental law. She now lives in Portland and graduated from Lewis and Clark Law School in May of this year. Congrats! She no longer practices hand balancing and instead has spent the past few years pursuing new hobbies like bouldering, Olympic lifting, and guitar. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Leah, welcome to Nothing Makes Perfect. Officially, uh, it's been a long time coming, but it's good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I've uh, probably DM'd you about this like three or four times over the past six months or so, but we've definitely had some interesting conversations about uh, handstands and circus and life outside of circus, so I figured we should probably get it on a recording. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I mean, we haven't had a similar trajectory, but I do feel like there's the sort of like being really intense in circus and then like not really feeling like it fits a lot of like how we think about things and then finding our way to other things. Like, I feel like there's definitely a parallel there. Totally. Um, and then you made the mistake of going from circus to law school. I fortunately <laughs> avoided that one. <laughs> Um, it's like a it's like a really smooth pipeline. I don't know how you somehow managed to talk <laughs> on that track, but. Yeah. That's like I described the other end of it where I went from like studying economics to circus school. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think we just kind of did it in reverse from each other. Yeah. 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 Um, so I wanted to start with something we were talking about recently, which is how practice doesn't feel like it looks. And I think anyone who's ever done handstands at any sort of serious level gets this, but I'd love to hear your take on it. Um, so just like, how it looks, I think, is pretty clear. Like you look at an expert on stage, you see a cool Instagram video, there's beautiful music and flowing controlled movement. What does it actually feel like? <laughs> yeah, well, so I think like I didn't even start thinking about this at all until I started teaching because that's really when like that mistranslation sort of happens. And I think as a performer, I really took for granted, like I had always done athletic skills for performance. So like from when I was little, it was all, even in gymnastics, it's like what you're doing shouldn't look hard. So even when we were training, like, I don't remember like 
allowing things to show on my face, for example. Like Mm -hmm. you have to like keep your face neutral. You have to keep your mouth closed. Like you're not allowed to do all of these things. And so I think as a hand balancer, it's like you have this experience of effort and then there's like the outward appearance of effortless in quotes, basically. And it's interesting because when you get to a higher level, I think especially with hand balancing, and I even have this like with beginner students, a lot of times when they achieve a task, it is the rep that feels the most effortless for them. So I actually think like handstands can go both ways. I'm just realizing now. Um because it's not like weightlifting where you just keep adding weight to the bar and you keep pushing and you keep pushing and like you figure out how to push more. It's very much when you master a skill, a lot of times that iteration will feel much more, I guess, like efficient Hmm. than it felt in the beginning. But, you know, holding a one-arm handstand, I'm like, pushing the floor for dear God. And it would probably be another like five years of training for me to get to the point where that skill felt maybe as effortless as it looked. So I think there is like a level of mastery involved, but there's also just every individual has their own experience of their physicality, like their own somatic experience, their own experience of their body. And it's like, we don't really have like the language to communicate that. So I think that's another part of it. So I'm like, you know, I'm picturing like other hand balancers listening to this and being like, I actually think hand balancing is really relaxing. (laughs) Like that could be possible, you know? So it's, it's really hard for me to say like, well, it feels like this and then it looks like this and that's how it's always going to be across the board for everybody. So we don't really have words for any of this, but I'm going to take it as my job here yeah. to to try to make sense of all of it. Um, so I'm going to like poke and prod and see if we can get some words that um, maybe describe something universal, but even if they don't describe your experience well. Um, so one, I think it'll be helpful to use examples and I don't want you to feel like they need to be relatable to everyone, like just what's true for you. So a lot of people listening will be like, wait, did she say one arm handstand? (laughs) Like, what are you doing with the other arm? So just for you, am I right that like kicking up into a two arm handstand and staying there just in a straight body position is like pretty effortless at this point? Is that fair? I would say for most of my life, yeah. This is also interesting because I stopped training handstands and it's been like three years now. Fair. So I have had experiences recently where I kicked up and it wasn't automatic. And that was really weird. But generally, yes, like I kick up into a handstand and that effortlessness, I think a part of it is I don't need to direct my body to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's automatic. I don't have, it's like when you stand on one foot, you're not thinking, oh, I need to like press my toes into the ground and I need to do this with my hip. You know how to stand on one foot. That's sort of what the regular handstand turned into for me. And then once it gets more complex, it feels, I think, similar to like any, when you're telling your body to do like a hard strength move, really. It's like Mm -hmm. I'm pushing, I'm pulling, I'm flexing. 
I'm trying to coordinate all of that together. Okay, so these are these are simple enough examples, at least theoretically, two arm handstand. Let's just call it easy. I know that you might have to go back a few years to really have it feel that way, but let's say a two arm handstand is easy. One arm handstand, let's call it hard or very effortful. Um, so take me into practice. Like you're not on stage. If you grimace a little bit or if you make a small correction, you know, <laughs> no one is gonna no one's gonna stop clapping, right? You're just in the yeah. practice hall or the studio. In the two arm handstand, again, like three years ago, peak handstand shape, whenever that was, yeah. when you kick up. Is there something that you're thinking about or is it so comfortable that you could be thinking about anything? I don't have to be thinking about anything. Okay, yeah. So you're just like, get into two-arm handstand and then once there, it's like, what What do you want me to do? Stay here for a minute or move my legs around or whatever. Okay. Exactly. In the one-arm handstand, um, so let's say maybe a typical way of getting into it would be like you tuck, straddle, or pike up into a two-arm, and then you shift your weight over onto one arm and release the other arm. Is that pretty typical? Yeah. So when you shift over onto one arm, now, again, like peak handstand shape, can you take me through in practice what you're thinking about or focusing on? Yeah. I feel like there's like a, I feel like there's a word for this that I don't have, like a zoom out sort of general mm -hmm. focus of my lower body, my legs, like pelvis position. Mm -hmm. That's just sort of there all the time when I'm doing something like that. So it's not like I'm focusing all of my attention onto it, but I'm very much like aware of what's happening. Like I can feel my butt squeezing. I would say generally it's like butt and toes, which are sort of like my anchor points in my head of like, where is my lower body? So that's something that like, if it wasn't in my attention, will come into my attention as I'm doing that transfer. And then I would say it's going to go into my hand. Um, and I'm also looking at my hand. So I think like that mm -hmm. visual focus becomes very important. And there's sort of like a tension between the fact that I'm shifting, let's say I'm going to the right. So I'm like shifting onto my right arm. My shoulder is actually pressing up like so I'm whatever elevating my scapula I don't know and mm -hmm. then but more importantly for me is I'm like pressing my right shoulder to the left as sort of like that counterbalance so there's like it's a lot of pushing and a lot of I would say like resisting body weight I don't know if I'm like answering mm -hmm. your question totally so I'm gonna try to like maybe put some words in your mouth, maybe summarize and kind of make sure that I'm hearing you right and we're on the same page. So the first thing you said I thought was really interesting, you focused on the lower body first. Obviously, you're going to need like a lot of strength and coordination in your upper body to, to hold yourself upside down on one hand. But like you point out, if the lower body doesn't cooperate, you're going to have a much harder time holding it. So here's where I kind of want to put a word to what you were saying and see if it resonates with you. What I'm hearing is it's like a holistic cue, it would be called, where it's not that you need like your eighth toe to be in a certain position or you'll fall over. It's that you have kind of this idea of like handstand straddle. Like I need to be in my one arm straddle. 
and you'll have various sensations associated with that. And you might have a coach tapping you somewhere or whatever, but it's like, there's this handstand shape. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why like handstands, it's such a repetitive practice I mean, maybe this is why, is that it's really just about like finding that holistic familiarity with all of these positions. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's like, it's impossible to tell yourself every single little thing that you have to do. Mm -hmm. Like you practice enough that your body knows where it's going consistently every time. So this is where it gets really difficult and interesting to me where like, I honestly think that what you're describing is where people who practice things like handstands and I would put something like ballet in a similar category where it's like super complex and intricate and detailed and repetitive. I think um, it leads us, I'll say, like I've practiced handstands too, it leads us to not really understand what we're practicing. It's like, it's tempting to believe that we can perfect all the little details and make them go right every time and repeat them. But I don't actually think that's true in reality. So it's like, like for instance, if you talk to a parkour athlete and a hand balancer, they'll talk about practice really differently because of their experiences being really different. And I think that the hand balancers among us, including me, tend to get led down that wrong path where like, we think we can get perfect. So before getting to perfect, I definitely want to ask for your like relationship with perfection and all that. But you mentioned the, so I talked about the lower body. You talked about the shoulder kind of pulling to the left to get you over to your right. And where my mind is going is like, what's the actual task? So I'll answer that question for the two arm, which I understand a lot better. And then I want to hear how you think of the task for the one arm. So for the two arm, I would say if you start on your feet and you're trying to get onto your hands, you have to move your weight forward in space. If your hands are going down in front of you, you have to get your weight over your hands and then basically stop it from going too far forward or too far back. So you're kind of balancing in this one direction. Like if I go too far forward, I fall. If I go too far back, I fall. And it's basically this like two dimensional task. Yeah. For the one arm, obviously it's a lot harder but how would you describe in like a sentence or two what you're actually trying to accomplish? So you're trying to accomplish moving your lower body and your trunk, torso. Mm-hmm. You are shifting that over the arm that you're going to be balancing on slightly. You can see that visually. Mm-hmm. But I would say more importantly, you are, there's going to be sort of an invisible task, which is engaging your shoulder to resist the added weight of that shift. So it's like, I'm describing it like that because I feel like the way you described kicking up into a handstand was very much like visually what you see Mm -hmm. is like, you have to get this stacked over this and then you're balanced. And in a one arm, obviously there's the visual change of like lifting the arm off, mm-hmm. but your body is, depending on what position you're in, it's a pretty small shift. And so much of that hard work is happening to make sure nothing else moves 
around that shift. Okay. So is it fair to say you are still trying to shift your weight onto like from we started with your left hand, like off of your left hand so that all of your weight is over your right hand. But then you're kind of, you're like going a step forward where you're anticipating what will all mess up when we try to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So explain that to me. For me, like that's the task kind of is like the task is, I guess that resistance. So can you break it down a little bit more like pretend I've never, no, nah, that doesn't help. Cause if I've never done a handstand, you're probably not going to throw me onto a one arm. <laughs> if I'm trying, so I'm a naive two arm hand balancer, right? I can get onto two arms. I cannot fall backwards. I cannot fall forwards. If you want to call it that, right. I can shift some weight over to one side. And then to me, it feels like I just have to shift my weight a little bit further. It's like, I can get part of the way there, but not all the way there. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is it's not actually that far but X, Y, and Z. So but, can you help me understand the X, Y, and Z a little bit more? Yeah. So it's not actually that far, say, in space that you're moving. Mm-hmm. But you are adding 50% more weight to that hand. So this is where <laughs> like, it looks a lot harder than it is. It's going to feel super, super far. Mm-hmm. Because you just doubled the task for that hand that you're on. And there's the shift laterally and then there's the shift of the push up mm-hmm. in your shoulder, that cue that we hear so many times that mm-hmm. is so hard to make sense of. And so, yes, you have the lateral shift, but I think what really makes it feel as if you're really on that hand is when you have the strength to accomplish that full extension on that arm with all of that weight there. Mm-hmm. Does that sort of answer the question? Yeah. So I'm now imagining, I'm trying to like put myself in the shoes of someone who has not learned a two arm handstand mm-hmm. and trying to make it kind of make sense in like a a hierarchy for them. So for instance, when you go from two arms to one arm, it looks like you have to hold twice as much weight on that arm. Like that's fairly intuitive, I think. So step one, not, not steps in like procedure, yeah. but you know, kind of layer one would be you have to hold twice as much weight on on one arm than you you know when you were splitting it 50 50 so that's really hard and then that second layer that maybe was less intuitive to someone is like you have to move your weight in space so if on if you're on two arms you're balanced kind of in the point in between your two hands but when you shift over to one you need to get that weight all the way over to that side and now you're introducing kind of layer three and maybe (laughs) four and five is like you also have to now balance around that hand. So you have to be like pushing, you know, twice as much or however you want to quantify it. You have to have your weight over the one hand. And then you also can fall over in all these different directions now. So if I described the two arm as like you can kind of fall in two directions, are there pretty standard ways to fall out of a one arm? Or at least in your experience, did you have like, one main thing that you were trying to resist? Yeah. I mean, I guess technically you could fall in any direction, but you're either going to fall back onto your other hand mm-hmm. or you're going to sort of like fall uh, towards the arm that you're on. So I'd say it's about 50-50. <laughs> okay, cool. 
So going back to practice doesn't feel like it looks, right? I'm now imagining, like I've seen your handstand, someone listening may or may not have, but in shorthand, I think it's fair to call it like perfect, mastered, graceful, et cetera. Like it just looks like, wow, you can get up there, put yourself into a position that looks impossible and then just stay. And it doesn't look like work. It looks graceful. Um, when you are doing all of the things we've just tried to like unpack and describe, so the the hard skill, the one arm, now like put yourself on stage. What is actually what does it actually feel like in that moment? Can we take it off stage? I just feel like the the experience of performing is it's like it's so different because there's so much going on. Like there's endorphins, there's so many other factors that get controlled for. But I guess to try to get at the like meat of of your question. I never got to the point in my training where a one arm felt as relaxing as say like kicking up to two arms. So I think without that level of mastery, there is a, it doesn't, I would say it doesn't feel like similar to say like squatting or something like that, Mm -hmm. but there is a feeling of like, okay, I'm about to perform like a strength skill. Cause that's like, mm-hmm. I really see one arm as like a strength skill. And I think I listened to your, the interview you did with a different hand balancer. Mm-hmm. And I think he, and he was talking about the same thing and I was just like nodding so vigorously <laughs> <laughs> listening to that because I think one arms are especially misleading in that sense, which is part of why I'm so hesitant to answer that question is like, yes, it's very technical, but if you have like a lot of the technical prerequisites, it's really just getting the strength in that shoulder because your body already knows how to like stay in alignment. You know how to like engage your abs and your butt and your legs and all this stuff. It's really, it is, I think, really more of a strength skill than people realize. And so if I'm performing that type of skill, it's going to feel sort of like, okay, I have to zero in my concentration on doing all of these precise pushes and engagements not too much and not too little and at the right time okay honestly i think that answers it perfectly because you've now made it understandable to someone who cannot do that which is me and almost everyone listening um so for instance like if you've ever held a barbell overhead or maybe more uh directly like a really heavy dumbbell on one arm right instead of thinking of it as like for me, standing on one leg does not feel like a strength skill, right? It feels like I'm balancing. But the better analogy is like holding the really heavy weight. I'm going to be sweating. I'm probably going to be trembling a bit. Uh, I might be grimacing. Like it's going to be really hard to make it look graceful on stage. Um, does that kind of map onto what you're saying? Like in when you describe a strength skill, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, so... The word mastery came up a couple of times. I want to go down that rabbit hole and see see what it what it means. Yeah. Um, let, yeah. Let's just start there. When you say mastery, like the way you're describing your two arm handstand, what does that mean to you? I think the way I was using it, it's really having a sense of ease, like actually having it feel easy mm-hmm. internally. Mm-hmm. So, like for the one hand, one for the two handed handstand, it's like that feels easy to me and I can do it quote correctly, which like, I don't, I don't love all of the like gatekeeping around the hand balancing form. I know that mm-hmm. you don't really either. Um, Definitely. but 
especially with skill like a one-handed handstand, I think to feel that level of ease, a lot of that technique becomes more important than it is at even like an intermediate level. But yeah, I would say generally it's like just that internal feeling ability to accomplish a task without exerting like a shit ton of effort. Nice. Honestly, that makes me feel much better because I kind of hate the word mastery, (laughs) but I totally relate to what you just said and how you described it. So like nothing makes perfect, right? I, you know, if you say I practiced until I got it perfect, or if you say I practiced until I mastered it, immediately I'm going to go through all this stuff in my mind of like, but is that possible? What are you talking about? (laughs) But I think basically what you've been describing so far is like your hand balancing practice was how to do something really hard with ease. And that's what you're calling mastery. Yeah. And I'm like a very like in, I'm like very much more focused on sort of like the internal sensation of how things feel. So like that's just like how my brain computes it. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I can still fall into the perfectionist trap because I might be able to do a skill really, really well and it looks really good, but like it doesn't feel the way I want it to feel. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not immune to that, but I don't have the same. And I think also because I've been out of like the circus performing world for so long, I just don't have like that same um, association with mastery as like, again, like that sort of gatekeepy, like it has to look like this and the masters do this and they teach like this and, and that whole sort of world. So if we dip our toes back into it for a moment though, when you were like practicing in professional circus school with demanding coaches with maybe what you might call the perfectionist trap, like there are pros and cons to that, right? You got really freaking good at handstands and maybe there are some cons, But let's start with the pros. Let's be a little generous to the idea of like perfection, mastery and and detail and all that. What like how would you describe your training in that in those few years? And what did you like? How did you benefit from trying to really like refine and perfect things? You don't want to be generous. <laughs> I, no, no, no. It's not that it's not that I don't want to be generous. I think it's really hard to look at the way that I was training then and to know like my learning style and to be able to see like with hindsight what was going on with me then mm-hmm. and not see just like a lot of really hard work that maybe was not directed very efficiently. Totally. Um, so like that was sort of what was going on in my head during that first pause. But I think there is a familiarity and that comes with being willing to do that much repetition, that is really, really valuable. So I do think that like the comfort that I have and the fact that it took me like four years of not training to lose, like it took so long for me to start losing that comfort. And I do attribute that to just the like straight up rigor of what I was doing And I do think that handstands at that level, it just takes like that much time. I like, you're not going to meet a hand balancer who doesn't train all the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's part of just what it takes and to get to that level. And so that training and also like, I loved it. 
that's the thing is like, I was, nobody was forcing me to be there. I wanted to train that much. I loved training that much and I loved what I was doing. So I, that was the plus. It was like, it was an amazing opportunity to do that and to train with coaches and other people who were that dedicated in a discipline that I think just naturally lends itself to that kind of training. So I don't know if I dodged your question, but. <laughs> Artfully. Um, you mentioned your, like knowing your learning style and that was kind of what you were reflecting on when you thought back on your previous training. How would you describe your learning style and like, why is it at odds with that type of demand? So I think when you're doing a lot of really, really repetitive drills, it's very easy to get caught in these like cyclical traps of now I'm just practicing the same mistake over and over and over again without realizing it. Hmm. And when I look back, I think that I was doing that a lot. And so I was spending a lot of energy. I was getting really strong, but I think in terms of skill acquisition, that might have set me back. And my, I tend to have sort of like a weird learning curve where I spend a very long amount of time not being able to do anything, just like failing, 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 and seeing no progress. And then all of a sudden I see a big jump. Hmm. And so that can be hard. Obviously it can be psychologically hard because it's a little bit like, um, it's not as motivating when you're not seeing progress. But I think knowing that now I would have given myself just more time to like master drills before trying to move on hmm. or more time before deciding like, oh, I'm actually not ready to do this. Like maybe I was ready and I just needed to keep trying a few more times. Interesting. That's That's so interesting that you went to letting yourself master drills before moving on. Because I'm like nodding along and then I'm like, but wait, I, I would have had the opposite instinct. So I'm really curious, like, can you give an example of a handstand drill that maybe you wish you had uh, mastered a little bit more before moving on? So I think when I'm, it's so hard because like so many of the drills are just basically the same when you're at that level. It's like you're just holding on a block or on a cane or on the floor with like three different leg positions. Mm -hmm. And... I wasn't aware of like these more like creative ways to learn things then because it's very traditional coaching of like you just hold or you just do this. And if it's not working, then you just do it more. <laughs> and so I think maybe what I'm trying to get at when I say like master the drills is like really understand how I was failing at the drill mm -hmm. and fix that instead of just saying, okay, well now I'm going to do this drill for another extra minute now that I've done it. Can we just underline that phrase? <laughs> if it's not working, just do it more. Like somehow that both describes a traditional coaching approach yeah. and like the definition of insanity, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like if something isn't working, we probably shouldn't like double and triple down on it with our blood, sweat and tears. Right. Like maybe we should reconsider that approach. But also like that's, it's so I think handstands, that's part of why they're so difficult to teach is because it's hard to tell sometimes when something isn't working because you can be getting stronger, but maybe like the point of that drill was to be getting stronger, but also like say, okay, if we want to go back to like the one arm example, mm -hmm. one of the classic drills is to like 
shift your weight into one hand and then have your fingertips on the floor. Sort of like a good way to scale it. Mm-hmm. And like you can get comfortable in that position, but maybe you're not moving in the direction of being able to take more fingers off. Like there's just so many little variables that mean that like maybe I can hold that position, but it's actually not the right position to be able to keep progressing that exercise. And like those things are very hard to see from the outside. Yeah, if I may use a non-handstand example, I was just talking to a client about this with assisted pull-ups where you are pulling with your arms, but you use your feet to assist you to, to take some of the load. And the inevitable question is like, well, how do I set up my feet? And you can lay out a progression where it's like, okay, use two feet and then use one foot and then go onto your toes and then blah, 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 blah. But what you're actually trying to do is much simpler. It's just use your feet less, like put less weight on your feet. And you can do that in a ton of different foot positions. Like you could cross your legs one over the other and use the outside of your foot and whatever. But if you just put more weight into your feet on your toes, you've defeated the purpose of the progression. And so I think that's kind of what I'm hearing with the fingertip progression is like, well, how much weight are you putting on your fingertips? But again, like when I hear master the drill, I interpret those words in my own way. And I that's like my own triggers that I have to work through. But what I'm hearing is like, you don't need to master the drill. You need a drill that is clear to you, like why it helps. And you need to understand what I would call is like the crux of what you're trying to learn. And so if you're trying to get less weight on your assisting hand, like to me, a simpler way is just like put a scale there (laughs) and just make sure that the weight is changing, right? Or like there are a lot of ways to do it, but it doesn't matter. Like the drill doesn't matter. What you're trying to learn is what matters. And what you're trying to learn is getting your weight onto one hand instead of two. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, it's hard. It's, it's also hard because like you said, in that environment, it's, it's getting your weight into one hand. I think also there's like a lack of prioritization maybe that's like coming through when I'm talking about this, which is that I'm like, well, it's getting your weight into one hand, but it's also making sure that your legs are in the right place. And it's also making sure that your other arm is doing the right thing. And it's also Mm -hmm. making sure all these other things And maybe that's also one of these perfectionist traps is like not prioritizing which task needs to be done first or like admitting I can't focus on all of these things at one time, which one, what's the point of this one thing. And like, this is something that comes up a lot for me, like with when I'm teaching is like, people are always like, well, my back is arched right now, or like my ribs are out or all of these cues. And I'm like, I don't care. Not, I don't say I don't care, but in my head, (laughs) I don't care. Like it really, or like, I'll say, okay, like put your arms above your head and put your ribs in. I know you can do that. So it's not that important right now. And I think that's, that's a really hard thing for me to do for myself though. It's much easier when you have like a teacher who's willing to say like, you don't have to think about that. Mm-hmm. Let's think about this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, is the crux of what you're trying to work on the thing that you feel like you're failing at, which comes back to what you were saying about the learning curve of like fail, 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 breakthrough, where how you define fail there is really important. Like if you're kicking if you're trying to learn a two arm handstand and your back is arching and you feel like that's a failure. Like your goal is to look like 
you know, Leah finished product and you're, you're in her class and your back is arching and you feel like you're fail, 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 fail. What I'm hearing you say now is like, I, Leah, the teacher, don't consider that a failure, right? right. The goal is to get onto your hands or balance or whatever the goal is. And that's just like a separate consideration. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. So I'm curious, like, to me, it sounds like maybe that, maybe like we can turn that back onto your own practice. Maybe, maybe there's room for allowing yourself to do that without having your own Leah who's telling you that it's okay to not do a certain thing. Like you can hone in on what the crux of what you're trying to accomplish is. Um, and it, whether it's the back arch or the shoulder position or whatever. So can we be a little like, uh, retroactively compassionate to super advanced, um, dil diligent training Leah, like when you were peak one arm in, in peak one arm shape, was there an equivalent of like that thing that you were focusing on that maybe it wasn't the crux? Like maybe you could have just focused on holding the one arm and not worried so much about blank. Yes. And also I think sort of how you were describing, like finding different ways to recognize success or saying like the goal of this 10 reps is XYZ, very small, specific thing. And just yeah. that, I think is something that like, that's, I think w one of the like missing pieces of that is like maybe just not being clear with myself what I was working on. So then it's really hard to say like, what is the success or what is the failure? If you don't, especially with something like handstands, if you don't have that zoomed in sort of goal. Nice. So now like, now I want to share that with everyone. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we can give compassion to past Leah. Now let's give compassion to everyone who's, who's listening. Um, maybe we think about someone who's trying to learn a two arm balanced handstand, like getting off the wall and they can kick up to the handstand against the wall. And maybe they're doing an exercise like heel pulls where you pull yourself away or um, your chest to wall and you pull yourself away. However you want to pull yourself off the wall to a balance what are a few examples of different goals you could have for a given set of an exercise like that? So obviously I think maybe the least forgiving goal would be time. Okay. I took my feet off for one second. This time I did it for two seconds. I just doubled my time, but that can be hard because it's so inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And I think with those types of exercises, that's where I really like if somebody is receptive to it, I really like the sort of like, feeling goals so like oh that rep i really felt it in my fingers like if it's somebody who's always feeling the weight in their the heel of their hand and they feel like they can't get it forward okay figure out how can i really feel it in my fingers you felt it in your fingers that was a success like let's do that five more times and so i really like those goals and also because then they build they sort of build in that like skill of body awareness and being able to identify what's happening in sort of like a sneaky way <laughs> without um, telling them they're doing that. Yeah. But so yeah, the like, so yeah, with the, with the, to get specific with that exercise, it might be feel that you initiated the shift with your shoulders instead of kicking your feet off the wall. That might mm -hmm. be. A yeah. And I imagine the list could go on as the like iconoclastic, like, <laughs> 
anti-perfect whatever person, I'm tempted to be like, you could, you can get off the wall with anything. Like, can your fingers initiate? Can your elbows initiate? Can your shoulder initiate? Can your lower back initiate? Can your hips? Can your right foot? Can your left foot? Like, that if you can do all of those things, then you probably have a pretty good chance of controlling the balance, um, which kind of brings us back to like doing it right and doing it perfectly. So when you think back to now going, we're like bouncing back and forth between advanced and not advanced. Yeah. So we're back in uh, one arm land. Did you get to the stage where you had a bunch of different one arm positions you could hold or did you have like one kind of comfort zone. Like if I want to get onto one arm, this is how I do it. I had like a few different leg variations, I would say. Mm-hmm. And like the sort of side bendy variations. Cool. So if you had to go back into it now, which you don't, <laughs> but let's say like, hey, three years from now, um I'm I'm doing I'm putting together this handstand show and I'll pay you a million dollars to get back into training and prepare for it. Would you would you kind of go back into like structured mastery of progressive exercises or do you think you would treat it differently uh, if you kind of had another crack at it? I think outwardly my training plan might look somewhat similar to like sort of a structured this many reps just because that's, I actually really struggle with progressing in that sense of like, it's really helpful to be like, I did five minutes this day. So then in four weeks, I'm going to do seven minutes. And then in, and that I think is really helpful with handstands to keep track of. So I think in some ways it would look very similar to that sort of like simple repetitive practice, but my choice of exercise and my approach and like my thought process and doing those exercises, I think would be very, very different. I think it would feel very different. Yeah. Um, than it felt before. And who knows if like, say after, and I also think I would be more responsive and like changing my training based off of what was happening. And like these concepts sound so obvious, but they were just not things that I was doing, you know, however many years ago that I was training like that. Totally. The only example that comes to my mind where I kind of had that opportunity to like go away from something and then go back and do it again, but better was uh, six ball juggling. I had worked on it and like, I got to the point where I could do a bit of seven balls, but I had always had this goal of getting a hundred catches of six balls and I never did it. And like, I was mostly interested in clubs and partner work and it was never like, I need to do this. It was never my top priority, but I had worked on it a lot with like, you know, like you're saying, like looking back, really big mistakes in my approach. Yeah. And then I went back after like years off of juggling and being much worse at juggling. And fairly quickly, I actually went back and got 100 catches. And I was like, man, if I had known then what I know now. That's pretty awesome. That's like the triumphant version. But yeah. even if I hadn't gotten to 100, like it's it's still, it's uh, two sides of the same coin. Like it's nice to be able to do things better and it's frustrating to look back on like when you cared about it so much and you weren't doing things better. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, there's, there's that, I feel like a lot of that like knowledge of how to teach 
adults just doesn't come into play in a lot of that like professional training, even though we are adults. Totally. Can you say more about what you mean by it not coming into play? I, well, so there is that sort of like deference to, you have like the old masters who are amazing coaches who have gotten amazing results out of their students. And so then people think, oh, if I just teach like that, it'll work. Mm-hmm. Or if I train myself like that, it'll work. And it usually doesn't. Or if it does, I almost feel like it's luck. And and I think most of the result of that is just that the group of people who are successful, it's very self-selecting and it's very limited. Like I think there are more people who could achieve a higher level of skill than do because of that. Totally. I couldn't agree more. Like the the people who let's just picture I don't I don't know your circus coaches, but I'm just picturing like a real like hard ass who makes you work as hard as possible and takes no excuses and that type of coach. The people who self-select into working under that type of coach were probably gonna learn whatever they were trying to learn, no matter what they did because they're really motivated and really um, hard-headed, <laughs> maybe, right? Like, yeah. you're gonna, no matter what approach you take on, you're probably gonna get better at a skill. But that doesn't mean it's the best approach, just because it works really well for, like, really competitive, motivated people. Yeah, or, like, it might only take you so far. Like, I think that was sort of my experience, is that I trained like that for most of my life as a kid, and it really worked for me, and it took me really far. And then it didn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, like lack of responsiveness is the trap of like cookie cutter plans work until they don't. And if it's not working, if you're not excited about figuring out like why it's not working, then I feel like that's where the plateaus can come. And that's where the stuckness comes. Yeah, it seems unlikely that like you as a seven-year-old gymnast and you as a 17-year-old aspiring circus artist or a 27, like, right? Like you're not the same type of training isn't going to work well for those different people, those different versions of you. Yeah, I think we often get lost in like, this is how this skill works. So this is how everyone needs to do it. But like, there's no such thing as a skill existing separate from the person. Like the person has to learn it. Absolutely. And that's, and it's like, and so, yeah, there's no such thing as a skill existing separately from a person. And that means that like, if I have expertise in something and I'm trying to teach it to myself or teach it to somebody else, if it's somebody else, like the other side of that coin is they have expertise in themselves. So like, our two expertises have to meet each other and like work together. Mm -hmm. My expertise doesn't work in a vacuum. Totally. And it goes, and I think that's another thing is like, you know, me training as a 19 year old, the self-knowledge that you have from 18 to 20 is very different from 25 to 35. Yeah. That was an interesting aspect of my circus training in my less prestigious program where because like the nature of a really competitive circus program is you're going to have pretty young people in it who are pretty ready to <laughs> throw their entire selves into it 
I had I was in a class with people ranging from 17 to 37, some of whom had like had other careers or raised families or um, been performing in circus for a long time and just want to do a little differently. And then some of those people who are like 17 to 19, who are kind of, you know, may have been in a program more like yours. And it was just really interesting to see like different people's approach to fitting intense circus training into their lives. Like when your life is so different. Yeah. And I, and I also think those two things sort of get mixed together as like people, especially people who are drawn to practices like juggling and hand balancing, which I think tend to attract people who like to do that type of work that, which is very repetitive and sometimes <laughs> giving and who are a lot of times very perfectionist people. And I noticed this, like, even in my recreational students, they tend to be like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure you do too. There's actually a separation between like, I'm trying to learn these skills and I identify as somebody who trains really hard or like I identify as somebody whose body can do X, Y, and Z thing. And it gets really like messy and tricky when you can't tell the difference between those two things, I think. Totally. So when you were in circus school, what was your identity like with respect to your training and your handstands? I, I mean, in a lot of ways, like it was what I had always done. So I wasn't inquiring into like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, I, I wasn't really having any of that like meta analysis. And I think I also really, really wanted to fit in Mm -hmm. where I was. So I think a big part of it was just trying to build that identity of like, I am somebody who does this and who it works for. And I am somebody who has these skills and I am somebody who has endless energy to train eight hours a day and to do all of those things. Whether or not that was what I was really experiencing, I think is a different question, but I definitely wanted to identify like that. Man, that's like, it feels like the curse of someone skilled enough to get into a position like that, right? Like I couldn't get into that school, so I didn't have to confront trying to fit in in such a difficult environment to practice in if that wasn't what suited me. You know, like you, you could have been in a different environment, but you excelled enough where you um, qualified to be in this really tough position. That's such an interesting phenomenon. And I also think like you made the point about age and there was, there was actually a pretty big age range in my program. Hmm. I may and have like, assumed wrong there. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, maybe, yeah. I, I mean, I was definitely on the younger end and I remember feeling really young and I think a lot of my friends who came in a little bit older had a much easier time just because of that, like, emotional maturity that I think I didn't have. Um, but also, like, there were a lot of positives about that program. Like, I feel like we got really dark, but I, like, there were, it wasn't all like, oh, this is so hard and it's not working and I'm trying to fit in. Like, I... It's just, I think, easy to reflect on those things, knowing what I know now and like having taught other adults and beginners and stuff like that. 
Yeah, it wasn't fair to wait a few years and then interview you about it. Like if I had interviewed you at the time, like on a weekend in your training program, you would have been like, I want to, I hate rest days. I want to go back and get in the studio and train. Like it's so fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I don't think I've ever hated rest days. Um, nice. Yeah. So let's talk about current Leah a little bit more <laughs> where it is more fair. Yeah. So one way in which like, I can't even count the number of differences between being in a professional circus training program and not. But one of the many ways is the nature of like the aesthetic practice. Like you were talking about looking like it's easy on stage, right? So we've talked separately about like climbing and weightlifting, these other practices, where at least to me, they're not aesthetic in that same way. Like you're not getting on stage and weightlifting, Talk about how that feels different compared to the aesthetic practice. I love it. It's like, so, <laughs> it, it makes me so happy. Like it's such a weight off my back. And like, that was, that's one of the reasons why I was honestly so excited to stop training at a professional level because there were so many things that I was like, I can just try this now and it's going to be fun. And like, I do benefit from that history of like really intense physical training and that I feel pretty comfortable making a fool of myself mm -hmm. going and trying new things. And it's so much fun to just do something and like not film yourself and not worry about how you look and focus on accomplishing a task. Because I think when I was training for aesthetics, yes, you're training for a task, but it's not the same feeling as like, it's enough if I complete this as you have like, lifting or like, you know, bouldering or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you like, let's say you're working with uh, two aspiring professional circus hand balancers and you can treat it like an experiment and have them each go one way. Do you think the kind of traditional idea that you need to practice in the aesthetic way that you want to perform, like when you're doing all your drills, you need to have your toes pointed and all that. How does that compare to like, take this other aspiring pro and just treat it more like task-based and get them super strong and super good at balancing and they can do it however they want and it doesn't need to look a certain way and then try to encourage them to make it look a certain way for aesthetics. I mean, I like when it comes to talking about professional training, I would still struggle with that, I think, because I don't feel like I have the knowledge to say how much of the aesthetics are unimportant for actually accomplishing the skill. And I think like, especially the higher, like there are certain skills where I'm like, I don't care what your two handed handstand looks like. It It's probably going to feel easier if your legs are straight. It's probably going to feel easier if you can like give some energy into your feet because it's going to help you engage all of these different things, but it doesn't really matter. As you get into these more complex skills, I get more rigid and I'm like, I need to see these things because I don't really know if it's going to work. And I do believe in a lot of senses, like it's the most efficient way to accomplish this. But also if I'm having, if I'm working with somebody, I'm going to ask them, you know, I'm going to say like, how much do you care about X, Y, and Z? And I can tell you what I think the trade-offs are and what I think the benefit of conforming to this is or why I think it maybe doesn't matter and you can decide. And like, I think that's the conversation that I would have. 
Like if you want to look like this Cirque du Soleil performer, you know, I'm going to tell you to straighten your legs and get that extension and all of that stuff. If you don't care, then maybe there's more flexibility. You reminded me of uh, what will hopefully be a future episode where I've been thinking about like whatever techniques you can point to in your discipline, they're trying to solve some sort of problem. Yeah. So like straightening the legs, being more efficient. It's like either that's true or it's not. Yeah. Right? Like physics exists. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what you're kind of, what I'm hearing is like there's a whole canon of technique in like the tradition of handstands and some of it actually like some of the techniques actually do make for more efficiency and ease and some of them don't. And it's really hard to tease apart. Like you have to go pretty deeply into handstands to figure out whether the thing that your coach tells you because their coach told them is actually true. Right. And like, I don't, right. And I don't know. And so I'm not going to pretend like I do know. And I think that's where a lot of that professional training gets really tough is like, that's not acknowledged. There's no acknowledgement of like, we don't know why this works. We don't have it teased that apart. And I think like just having that acknowledgement in your head as a coach at a higher level is really helpful because it like introduces that flexibility to say, okay, well maybe this isn't that important and maybe it's holding us back right now. So let's like make an adjustment. Yeah. If if there isn't room for maybe, you're really likely to miss some things that you could have found. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think we have to talk about bouldering a little bit before we go. You brought up boulder, or Good. maybe I brought it up. <laughs> but um, obviously uh, a, a hobby of each of ours after getting away from handstand obsession for too long. Um, tell me a bit about what your bouldering experience has been like. It's honestly, it started really as a social thing. So there's a gym pretty close to my school and I started going like on my friends' free passes over the summer. And I just thought it was fun. And it hasn't become something that I've gotten really attached to in that sense, where I improve and then I take a break and then I go back to the beginning and then I improve a little bit more. And that's just basically been it. But I'm just so fascinated by like, First of all, I love watching people boulder. Like, it's just such a cool thing to watch people do because you can see them problem solving while they're doing it. And I love how it really emphasizes your individual body and like figuring out your individual ways of making things work and your individual strengths. Like, it's sort of the opposite of that cookie cutter approach obviously there are techniques and skills and all of that but in terms of like one big um route you're not supposed like especially when you're in a you're a beginner you're not going to do it the way that like my friend did it who's five two and i'm five five and then our other friend who's five seven we're all going to do it differently and i'm going to do it differently because i have more flexibility and it's, I think it's like a really good mental practice for me to be like, what am I good at? And like, how is that going to be helpful for me in this situation instead of the like 
sort of ruling how do I need to mold my body to like be different than it is to do this thing. That's awesome. I feel like every high level circus uh, performer or practitioner should have some sort of practice like that where they can just like unwind, do the opposite, just accomplish something or don't for the sake of that thing and not worry about like how it looks or how someone else does it. That's really cool. Um, can I make a grand statement about bouldering and hand balancing and see yes. to what extent you agree? Yeah, yeah. Bouldering is inherently task-based. Like you try to get to the top. Yeah. Skills and techniques emerge from that task. Like if you take a thousand different people and have them try to climb something, some of them will flag their feet and some of them will smear and some of them will heel hook and some of them will toe hook and they'll find different strategies to accomplish the task. What you said is you love watching people do it which brings us back to aesthetics. So like interesting things happen visually when different people work hard to accomplish tasks. If hand balancing, instead of if we said like everyone has to mold themselves into this one way of looking, if we just said, how good can you get at balancing on your hands? Then everyone would do it really differently. You'd have more like breakdancing styles and gymnastic styles and circus styles and all these different things would emerge and then get on stage and it would look really freaking cool still and maybe even cooler. And it doesn't need to be like, wow, I did it like the Cirque person I grew up watching and now I'm gonna teach someone else to do it the same way. It can just be like, what's the task? And wow, it's incredible to watch humans do that task. I think you're gonna make a lot of people really mad. (laughs) (laughs) Who am I gonna make mad and how? And can I talk with them on the next episode? No, but I mean, that's like, it's what you're saying is true and i also think it goes well i said and (laughs) but and i also think it goes against sort of like this tendency that we have to like categorize ourselves. and it's like when you started talking i was like well yeah that's basically what happens with breakdancing is like it's a much more there isn't that rigidity in the learning styles. And then it made me think about ballet where like, it's all about that rigidity in the technique. And so when I said, Oh, you're going to make people mad. It's like, (laughs) because I think like ballet in the circus world, there is like just a much more traditional mindset of like, this is how we do it. And I guess like, I don't see an inherent problem with that except for when it trickles down to places that it's just unnecessary to think like that. I think I do have a problem. I think, yeah, I think that's my problem. That's like the stick up my ass is this, like we do it this way because we do it this way. And now you have to do it is just always an idea that has really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, Well, it's not a very smart idea. (laughs) I agree personally. It's not smart. It's not efficient. It's not, it's exclusionary. It's exclusive. Mm Mm-hmm. It makes, it tells people, oh, you can't do this because you look this way or because your body is like this or because it's going to take you longer to learn this. Like, and you're absolutely, like, I think the circus world would be a better place if that wasn't the case. Definitely. Like, I don't, I don't think it's good that it's like that necessarily. And I think it's sad that 
I think people hear that and they think, oh, well, like you're just going to get rid of all this technique and all this amazing stuff because there is really amazing stuff that comes with training with that technique and it is really beautiful. And it's like, no, the point is that so many things can exist at the same time. Not that we have to like get rid of something and replace it with something else. Yeah, I'm all for the like the clarity on what works well, like again, physics. I just think it's where you start to lose that and replace it with like tradition and like do it because I said so. And you can you think or maybe you you show that it's biomechanics when it's really like my way. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like I said so, so this is what works. And it looks like you're proving yourself right over and over again. Like if you have a bunch of really successful students who get really good at it, great. But yeah, like if they're just really driven and willing to go through hell to do it the way you said, sure, they're going to get really good and they would have gotten really good without you probably. I'm tempted. Like I feel like we should be having uh, someone who I won't name yet (laughs) in case they don't want to be named right now, but another really high level hand balancer um, who is does come from like a really... Um, mechanical background and I agree with <laughs> what he says like I don't mean to put it as like a, a confrontational debate but I feel like the three of us would have a really interesting conversation about like well what really does work and like can we tease apart the techniques that make sense versus like we've just you know a lot of people have told a lot of people to do it that way yeah yeah and I don't think that anybody but also just like, how would we know? How would you, how would you know what works? Okay. Well, I can't leave, we can't just leave that hanging there. We have to answer that. Right. <laughs> is it I like think, physics? Like, could you, okay. Oh man. Well, okay. This is now officially the start of <laughs> the start of a new podcast, but, but how also, do we know what works? Say it again. Like, I think, and this is where I am, I think much less of a perfectionist than a lot of people is like, I honestly don't care that much. <laughs> like, I like I think as a teacher, I care about like being open to learning as a teacher and not being stuck in tradition and learning from other coaches and learning from my students and like that being the way that I grow. And I care about listening to my students and I care about like getting them to where they are. And... So part of me is like, I don't need to hold on to like all of the tradition. I don't need to hold on to that. So like, do I really care what part of it is like true and what part of it isn't? Because we're going to go through this exploratory process anyways with each individual. Do you know what I mean? Well, wait, wait, wait. You can take the tradition and try to tease apart what works and what doesn't, or you can throw it out and start from a blank slate but there's still value in something working, right? Like we don't need to throw away the idea of it being possible for something to work better than something else. Yeah. I'm totally agnostic as to whether you start from a tradition and figure it out or start from a blank slate, but some things do work better than other things, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's take an example. At least in two-arm handstanding, which I can speak to, balance is a big part of the equation. Yeah. Like you mentioned the visual system earlier, right? If you're trying to stand on one foot or balance on two hands, if you stare at a point, you'll be a lot more successful than if you close your eyes, right? Like yeah. that's that's pretty true for most people I've met. So 
for instance, if I were to design a handstand program for a million people, I would much rather say, let's keep our eyes open and look at a point on the floor than close your eyes and try to feel your shoulder doing such and such, right? And that's supported by research with like external focus of attention and all kinds of things. Even if I were wrong about that, even if I am wrong about that, it's still possible for that statement to be true or false and like for one of those to work better. And that has value aside from like the wagging your finger and do it because I said so. Like you can do what you want with that information, but it's still information. Yeah. Yeah. So you're basically saying like out of all of those traditional things, like which ones are actually objectively true and which ones aren't or like, Maybe, yeah, which ones are actually objectively helpful for learning and which ones aren't. Totally. Learning more, whatever your learning goal is, like learning more quickly or accomplishing this. Because I feel like sometimes that's really what we're saying is like, how do you learn something faster or accomplish something faster? Because like maybe doing a bunch of practice with your eyes closed, it won't get you balanced faster. But like, what if it developed some other sort of awareness or helps your shoulders work better like my head just goes to all these different variables, no matter what mm-hmm. I have trouble, like not overcomplicating it. But there's also a difference between like establishing something as true and then picking it as the thing that you're going to do. So, yeah, I mean, I guess if I boil it down, I'm really just making an argument for like the existence of truth. <laughs> like, like you said, there could be total, there could be a lot of value for a lot of people in doing yeah. it with your eyes closed at any stage of the process. I'm not, I wouldn't argue that. That's just yet another claim that can be true yeah. or not. And I happen to think that one is also true. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's not the most grand statement. Like most people would tend to agree that truth exists to some, I don't know. Now we're really. Now we're really off the handstand rails, but I think I think we agree on tradition, <laughs> the the weakness or the the potential risks of over traditionalizing a really difficult thing to learn. Yeah. Um, and I guess I would invite you instead of ending on like some weird uh, pseudo philosophical note, I'd invite you to kind of wrap us up with like what. Um, maybe like what message would you rather give to the recreational handstand students that you do work with, or maybe like your friends who climb or anyone kind of taking a practice on like seriously, but not too seriously. Um, yeah. Maybe if you have a closing note for all of those people. Yeah. Um, I think I'm definitely becoming a master of the somewhat serious practice and I think this is even something that you've said to me before, which is knowing why you're doing something, both like, why am I bouldering? And also like, why am I doing this route? Or like, why am I frustrated with this? Is like the singular most grounding question that you can possibly ask. Because like, if I'm bouldering because it gives me time to spend with my friends where we're not talking about law school, that's going to shift every decision I make. And then if I realize one day, actually now I'm bouldering because I want to be able to flash sixes, that's going to change. And just Mm -hmm. that consistent check-in on like the macro level, on the micro level is I think what leads to the like good, good questions. 
I love it. Thank you. Um, I personally thoroughly enjoyed, especially the handstand ranting that we got to do together. <laughs> it felt very therapeutic in a lot of ways. It's a while for me, so. <laughs> I hope uh, I hope someone else in the world who eventually listens to this also finds it either interesting or therapeutic. Um, and if I pissed anyone off, feel free to um, shoot me a message or bring it up with Leah if you like. Yeah, thank you. This was great. A lot of things that I really have not thought about in quite a long time. So thanks for like letting me go back there for a little bit.